you haven't already. So Romans 8, 28, join me please. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We have just sung that, but it is our heart's desire. Father, we need to feed upon you in the word. We need to feed upon your son, Jesus. Father, each of us in this life will suffer hardship. Some will suffer a lot, some not so much, but we will all suffer. It's a part of living in a fallen world under the curse that's on this world. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn things this morning that will sustain us in the times of great difficulty and that also we will be able to use, Father, not glibly, but very seriously as we comfort those around us who suffer. Father, I pray that you would bring assurance to us today, reassure us that you love us no matter what's going on in our lives if we are your children, if we Love you, and if we are called according to your purpose, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How can you be assured that God loves you when you are going through more than just the usual stuff of life? When your problems are of a greater magnitude than being stuck in traffic, like I was Thursday afternoon on the Blue Route coming from our former intern's graduation at Westminster, uh, when the problems you are suffering are more serious than a cold that you have come down with, maybe a minor disagreement that you've had with your husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, when it's more than losing some privileges that your parents have taken away for a time because you have violated one of their rules, how can you be certain, how can we be certain that God loves us when the phone rings and the person on the other end of the call is from a doctor's office. And that person tells us, I got your lab report back, and I hate to tell you this, but you have three coronary arteries that are severely occluded. We don't think we can do stents. We're probably going to have to do open-heart surgery. Or that same person in a different situation is telling one of us that, it looks like you really do have cancer. What we suspected is absolutely the fact of the matter. How can you be assured that God has your best interest at heart when you lose an unborn child that you have prayed to conceive a long, long time? Or when your supervisor tells you that your job is being eliminated? Or when your parents tell you that they're divorcing? It's not your fault. It's gonna be better for you, of course but they will no longer be together. How do you know God's love for you is just as strong at the time of the accident, in the midst of the financial struggle, or when a loved one dies as it was before the crushingly painful experience took place? How do you go on secure in your faith in your heavenly Father? How do you go on knowing for sure that he really does love you? that he hasn't abandoned you? Well, these are questions that the Apostle Paul answers in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 16, the Apostle Paul talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life, in the soul of each person who trusts Jesus as Savior and Lord. So if you have accepted Christ, if you've acknowledged your sin, if you have asked him to come into your life, 
then the Holy Spirit of God comes and takes up residency in your soul, and he begins to do a work. Now, in that work that takes place in your life, he works to make you progressively more like Jesus in your actions, in your words, in your very thoughts. And that work that the Holy Spirit of God does in us creates within us an assurance that we are daughters, that we are sons of the Lord Jesus, of Almighty God, and brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. That work that the Holy Spirit does in us assures us of intimate relationship with God, a relationship that causes us, that actually provokes us to freely call Almighty God our Father. Now, St. Paul, in chapter 8, verse 17, after reminding us of this work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, causing us to realize, to understand that we are children of God, thinks about God's firstborn son, thinks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we are Jesus' brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He also thinks about the fact that because we have the same Father, we are heirs and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also our Father. We call out to him, Abba, Father. Now, as co-heirs, the Apostle Paul is reminded that we share in the inheritance that Jesus has. But think about Jesus' inheritance. In his inheritance, he suffered. He experienced suffering that came to him through the hand of his heavenly Father. But Jesus' inheritance involved more than just suffering. Jesus also received from the Father glory. Jesus suffered incredible rejection, agony, pain, suffering, death. But he was also freed from death in his resurrection, and he was raised to eternal life. As co-heirs with Jesus, we are told in 8.17, that we share in the suffering that came as part of Jesus' inheritance, but we are also told that we share in Jesus' glory. Now, hopefully you have Romans 8 open before you follow this time as I read 8.17. Now, if we are children, Paul says, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Now, right up front here at the beginning of this sermon, there are two things that we really need to grasp from the text. And one is, the first truth is, that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being radically changed by him, renovated by the Holy Spirit, renewed by the Holy Spirit, doesn't inoculate us against suffering. I mean, I guess there are people who stu still do this. Uh, TV preachers tell you that if you know, come to Jesus, everything will be okay. Uh, I don't know because I don't get to watch much of that. But one of the things we do know is that if people say that, it's just not true. What we're being told here 
is we share in suffering even as Jesus did. But the second truth is so great. It's so wonderful. It's that suffering is actually one of the tools that God the Holy Spirit uses in the life of a believer to bring about that believer's glorification. And we're going to explain what that means as we go. So the sovereign, the divine sculptor, the Father God, uses suffering in our lives to help us get to the final destiny that God has set for us when he chose us before the foundation of the world. And we're going to see that that final destiny for you and for me, if we know Jesus, is glorification. Now, what is glorification? It's a term that describes the completed work in a Christian. Glorification is the destiny that God determined for believers before he created the world when he chose them in love to in time be his children. That destiny is for each of us to be redeemed completely from the damage that sin brought into the world and the damage that sin brought into our lives individually and collectively. Now, this work that God's doing in us when we come to faith in Jesus is a work that begins in each true Christian in this life. It's partially completed when we die. When we step into the presence of Almighty God, we're going to see Jesus, and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be like him in the sense that our souls will be made completely holy. No matter how long we follow Jesus or how close we are to him in his life, there's always some sin that remains in us. But at death, when we enter the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the souls of the righteous who have been made perfect. But that's not the end of our destiny. This work is not completed until Christ returns and the dead are raised and we receive immortal bodies that are like Jesus' resurrection body, bodies that are free from decay and from aches and pains and, and all of the things that we're subject to in a world that has been cursed by sin, bodies that are free from death. So to be glorified, Romans 8.29 tells us, is to be conformed into the likeness of God's Son. Our ultimate destiny is to be made like the risen Christ Jesus. Now, once the apostle, the apostle lets us know um, that um, not only is suffering a part of what we're going to experience, but that God will use suffering in our lives to make us holy, he feels the need to help us survive the suffering that we're going through. It's one thing to say that suffering works glorification in us, works sanctification and, and precedes our ultimate glorification. But how do you survive the stuff of life? Paul feels, rightly so, that we need to know how to bear up under suffering and to not interpret our suffering in this life as some indicator that God doesn't love us anymore or that he loves us less than he did when we were experiencing relatively little suffering. Now, God tells us that we can keep from this wrong thinking, thinking that God doesn't love us when we're suffering, 
by, by doing three things. Now, I'd like you to follow as I read verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And please keep in mind, I'm reading through steamy bifocals in the dark, okay? So, 18 of chapter 8. Consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons or sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So how do you survive suffering? Well, the Apostle Paul says that in the midst of our suffering, we need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to think what awaits Christians at the end of this life. He acknowledges that life here is hard at times. He freely admits that the whole creation is groaning because it experiences struggle and death and decay, physical and emotional pain, in the world because of Adam's sin. But he says, in effect, anything that you or I suffer here is but for a very brief moment, and we need to look forward to the time when the creation will be liberated completely from its bondage to decay, from the curse, and when you will experience eternal glory that God has prepared for you. Paul believes that if we do this, if we keep our eyes fixed on the goal, that we'll end up where he is mentally in chapter 8, verse 18. And look what he said there again. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's in effect saying, yeah, we're all going to experience some short-term pain but we need to keep in mind in the midst of our suffering that we're headed for eternal gain, a place where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more parting, no more decay. Now, in chapter 8, verses 26 through 27, Paul gives us a second tool to help us survive our suffering and to survive it with believers, as believers, to survive it with a deep joy in the midst of the tears. And he says there that we should pray even when we're so crushed that we have nothing to say. When in our absolute brokenness, we are speechless before God, we should still go to God in prayer. Let me read verse 26. Paul says, in the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for in these times, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans 
that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I want to tell you, Pat and I have had a pretty easy life. Well, Pat hasn't. She's lived with me for years and years and decades. But relatively speaking, it's been pretty easy. But there have been times in my life when I was in a situation where I was so broken by life, and I think you've been there too, where I just couldn't pray. I didn't know what to pray. I remember a couple times being on the floor of our den, you know, spread eagle, just groaning. You know what this text says? This text tells us that when we get to that point, that the Holy Spirit of God takes those groans when you're so broken, those sighs, and he makes prayers out of them, and he offers them up to Almighty God. And we know that God the Father always hears the prayers of the third person of the Blessed Trinity, and God makes sense out of that. The Holy Spirit makes sense out of that for us before the throne of God. Spend time in prayer when your heart is so broken that no intelligible words can come out of your mouth. The Holy Spirit prays for you in times like that. And those prayers the Apostle Paul is telling us will keep us from doubting God's love and doubting the relationship that we have with the Father as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul says that kind of praying will sustain you in suffering. And then lastly, Paul tells us that we need to know with absolute certainty that God uses everything that comes into our lives for our ultimate good. And the operative word there is ultimate good. Keep that in mind. Romans 8.28 again, and we know, there's just no doubt there at all, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now remember in the context here, Paul is talking about suffering. So the all things that he mentions are the things that come into your life, come into my life, that we find to be the most painful of things. Think about that. Now Paul does not say, that everything that happens to a believer is good. It is not good to lose an unborn baby or an infant to death. Illness is not good. There are so many things in life that happen to us that are not in themselves good. Being ridiculed in school is not good in itself. Suffering for your faith in the abstract. I mean, it gains eternal glory for us, and God is pleased when we stand up for our faith. But in the moment, being ridiculed for our faith, that's not good. Being deserted by a mate when you've been a faithful husband or a faithful wife is in of itself not good by any stretch of the imagination. But Paul's amazing assertion here it's just amazing. He says that the pain, the suffering, the evil that come into a Christian's life are used by God to bring about the Christian's ultimate good. God takes all of the pain that comes into a believer's life 
and presses that pain into service for him. Now, think about this. There are good things that come into our lives from a heavenly father who loves to give good gifts. Uh, And those things are used by God too, you know, for our ultimate good. But what we keep in mind here is this chapter is about suffering. So he's specifically talking about how God works the things that we think are bad uh, and which are bad out for our ultimate good. Now, did you notice the Apostle Paul didn't say, we assume, it's my studied opinion, that all things uh, that come into a person's life, a believer's life, are worked by God together for good. He didn't say we assume that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. He says we know, no doubt at all. Now, look at 822. Paul wrote there, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, how is he so certain about that? Well, I'll tell you how he's so certain about what's going on in this universe. It's because he knows Genesis chapter 3. And God has revealed that in Adam's fall, the entire world is suffering. It's all under the curse of decay and death. And so the Apostle Paul could say in that situation, we know because God has revealed that truth. He knew what Genesis 3 said. But look at 826. He wrote there, we do not know what we ought to pray for. In that situation, a crushed believer is trying to pray, and there's no God-revealed prayer to pray in a situation like that that we're told to pray. Now, it's good to read the Psalms, and you can pray the Psalms, and it's helpful to read the Psalms where psalmists just pour their hearts out to God when they're in the midst of trials and tribulations and suffering. But we're not told specifically that we have to pray those things. So the Apostle Paul says, we do not know what to pray for. You see, we're left in uncharted waters. The assurance that he had in 822 and he's going to show in 828 are not there. But look at 828 again. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Absolute certainty of the Apostle Paul in this situation. Now, why is he so certain? The only thing that I can suggest to you is that, some, that this, this truth has been revealed to the Apostle Paul, and so he speaks with God's authority on the matter of suffering and how God uses it. And I believe that's absolutely the case. You know, when you look um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, The Apostle Paul talks about suffering he went through in this life. And he suffered, we think, some physical difficulty. He talks about his thorn in the flesh. He prayed repeatedly that God would take it away, but God revealed to Paul that he was not going to take it away. Why? Because it was for Paul's good to experience the physical limitation he experienced. Paul tells us there, by experiencing that limitation, he learned to depend on the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God's Spirit, and so he could not boast in things he was doing himself. His ministry and all the outworking of that was an outworking of the Spirit of God in him, just like it was in Jesus. Jesus performed his ministry here on earth 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. Check it out. The Scripture teaches that. So Paul uses the emphatic we know to emphasize the special working of God in his children's lives. And he uses this absolute language because he knows it doesn't always feel for us like God is working everything out for our good. Sometimes as a believer, you may have felt that you were being destroyed by the things that God allowed to come into your life. You might have felt that God didn't care for you. He let this stuff come in. How could a loving, caring Heavenly Father do this to his child? But God's apostle tells us we are never to go by our feelings in these situations. Instead, we are to go by this truth that God has spoken. We are to believe this truth in suffering. We're to hang on to it when our fingers are white and we're slipping and they're cramped. We hang on to the truth. No matter how we feel about our circumstances, the truth is that every difficulty, every tragedy, every loss, every heartache, God is working with to bring about our ultimate good, whether it feels that way or not. You know what this means? There is no meaningless suffering in a believer's life. There is no pain you have ever experienced or ever will that God wasn't using to bring about good in your life or will be used to bring about good in your life. But did you notice that this promise is only specific to Christians? So it's not general for the whole population of God's creation. It's for believers. The Scripture says it's for those who love God who have been called according to His purpose. Now, look, there are people who are believers who will tell you, I don't hate God, I love God. But experience tells us, and Scripture tells us, that they don't love the God of the Bible. Uh, the only people that really love the God of the Bible are people who have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because this God of the Bible asks us to do some really hard things. The God that we create when we're not a believer is a God who's like an infinite Santa Claus. And all he does is give us the stuff that we want, stuff that, you know, that's the, the kind of God that non-believers fall in love with. But Christians have a love that's created within their heart for God. And that's what Romans teaches. If you look at the early verses of this chapter, if you were to read verses 1 through 4, what you will find out is this, that the Holy Spirit of God, as he makes us like Jesus, produces the works of the law in us. Now, when you think of the moral law of God, the Scripture tells us and Jesus tells us that the whole law of God, all the laws that God has, are summarized by two general commandments. You can hang all of the other laws of the Bible under these two commandments. One of them relates to God, and the other relates to our neighbor. In Deuteronomy 6.5 and Mark 12.30, we have that first uh, summary of the law, the part that applies to God. And there, that summary of all the laws that relate to God is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Those people who have asked Christ to come into their lives, those people who have recognized their sin and turned from it and thrown themselves on the mercy of Jesus 
and they prayed, Christ, come into my life. I want to follow you as Savior, Lord. Those people have been saved from their sin, and God produces, God the Holy Spirit produces a love for God in them. But Paul also says that God uses suffering to produce ultimate good in those who have been called according to God's purpose. Now, they obviously are the same people. We think that Paul adds the second phrase so that we will never think for a moment that God will not work all things together for our good if something happens for a time in our relationship to him. God doesn't want us to know that working all things out for our ultimate good is contingent upon our love for him. And boy, I'm so thankful that Paul added the second phrase. Think about human relationships for a moment. Often the case is this, that people love us as long as we love them. If, they keep doing, if we keep doing stuff for them, um, they love us. If we stop doing the loving deeds, then they don't love us. So much of human love, because we are sinful, is based upon performance. People love us as long as we keep performing. By this statement, God assures us that the promise he makes to work all things for our good is not based upon the unwavering consistency of our love for God. It's to assure us that God's promise is not contingent upon our continued ardent love for him. Paul turns from speaking about our love for God to God's sovereign calling of us for his purposes. Now look, if you are so crushed by the circumstances of life that your love for God for a time has grown cold, the promise is not withdrawn because of that. If you have been called to follow Christ and you have followed, you are always in this promise. The promise is always for you. If your love for God grows weak, if for a time you wonder if you have any love for him at all, if you have been called according to God's purpose, then God continues to work out everything for good. God is using your suffering for good, and he's working in you his eternal purpose. Now, we've been talking about God's eternal purpose for us, that God has a great and eternal purpose. If you're a believer, God has called you to that purpose with the call he gave you to respond to the gospel, to follow Jesus. And he's using everything that comes into your life to bring you to that ultimate purpose and plan. So you have to remember your call when you're suffering. You have to go back to the fact that you responded to the gospel. You placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And you have to remember that means that you've been called according to God's purpose and that God is working out the suffering for your good. Now, what is the purpose or plan to which God called you? We finish with this. Paul tells us that in 8, 29 through 30, at the end of a beautiful chain of things that God does for us in the, in the process of saving us, it starts in eternity before there's time and ends when we are at God's throne and everything is wrapped up, that God 
God's completed plan uh, for the universe and for people is um, completely wrapped up. So we're told about that end game in verses 29 through 30, at the end of 30, and we're also given a description of that end game in verse 29. It's mentioned in verse um, 29. God's ultimate and final goal for Christians is that each Christian become glorified. And we end with this. Look at verses 29 through 30. For those God foreknew in eternity past, before there was time, he knew you if you're his child. He placed his love upon you. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the goal. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God's ultimate and final goal for you as a Christian is that you become glorified. And the best definition of that is what we just read in verse 29 one more time, and that is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, what does the word predestinate mean? The word means to determine a person's destiny beforehand, to mark out a goal for them, a destiny for them. To be glorified is to be like Christ in his perfect and holy resurrected humanity. It is to always act like Jesus acted. It's to always speak like Jesus spoke. It's to always think like Jesus thought. And to do all of these things in a body that has been raised from the dead like Jesus' body, a body that will live forever, a body that is glorified. Glorification is the completion of the work that's going on in you now, if you're a believer, which we call sanctification. It's the very end. Now, some of this destiny that we're talking about, God has ordained uh, for us when he chose us before time to be reached in this life. So, we're becoming more like Jesus, hopefully, through the preaching of the word, through viewing the sacraments, through interacting with other Christians. Uh, all of that is a process where God's working to make us holy, to make us more like Jesus. God's Spirit works in us through these things. We call them the means of grace to make us more and more like him, to hate what Jesus hates and to love what Jesus loves. Romans 8 is teaching that God uses pain and heartbreak and suffering and loss in your life as part of that process in this life to bring you closer and closer to the goal that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now look, if you are a believer, you are guaranteed by Romans 8 that no sorrow, no pain, no disappointment, no embarrassment, no rejection, no loss, no burden that you have carried or will carry is meaningless. It all has purpose. It's working to make you look, look like the one who suffered so much for you. The God who loved you before time and before you cared anything about him uses each and all of those experiences to bring you to this grand eternal plan and purpose that he has for you. 
And look, in this life, you will suffer. Some of us will suffer less than others, some much, much more, suffer an awful lot. Don't ever think for a moment that your sufferings mean that your heavenly Father doesn't love you with infinite love. In the dark hours, what do we need to do? We need to keep our eye on the eternal prize. We need to pray when all we can do is be spread out on the floor and sigh and groan. And we need to remember that suffering is one of the tools that a divine sculptor is using to make us into the image of the Lord Jesus. And I tell you again, this promise is not generic. It's for people who've trusted Jesus. If you haven't done that this morning, we're always glad there are people here who, you know, have not given their lives completely to Christ savingly. We invite you today to recognize that you violated God's law, that you're a rebel, that you've sinned. That shouldn't be too hard to do. Think of the law of God. Think of the Ten Commandments. We've broken God's law over and over again. Tell Christ that you believe that he died for your sins. Pray to him and tell him you believe that you want him to come into your life and take away your sin. And you tell him that as God's Spirit gives you grace, remember, he's the one that makes you holy. You don't clean yourself up first. You come to Jesus, and then Romans 8, 1 and following is produced in you by God's Spirit. You tell him that by God's grace, you want to follow Jesus. You want to go wherever he leads you. If you accept Christ in that way, you are a child of God. You can call him Father. He recognizes you to be his son and daughter. We invite you to do that as I pray. Father, thank you for the attention of your people in adverse uh, situation today. Kind of ironic that we're studying suffering, and we're suffering a little bit, Father. Um, we're spoiled people in so many ways. I am, and, and this does feel like suffering um, to be up here and to be in the heat. But, Father, we think of the Christ who, who suffered all his life, and who went to a cross and suffered not just physical pain, but, but suffered hell there for all of those who in time would believe. Father, I pray that for the one, the several who are here, who've not yet accepted Jesus, that they would do that today. That, Father, this wonderful future, this destiny, would be one that they can claim. That when all of life is over and our work on earth is done, that they will enjoy in a new heaven and a new earth without the effects of the curse. Life lived in the way you intended it in the Garden of Eden. Father, give grace for those who are present who don't know Jesus to cry out to him in their hearts, to ask Christ to come in and take away their sins. We pray it for the honor and glory of Jesus, not for anyone here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you turn to hymn number 94? We're going to sing verses 1 through 4, stanzas 1 through 4, and then 6.